Hi, welcome to Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing the 2017 uh, surrealist film uh, by Yorgos Lantimos, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and the new John Krasinski film, his first, A Quiet Place. But first, the news, light news week, and we have one story we're going to save for the death of cinema, so stay tuned for that. But first, Fox Searchlight makes major overall deal with Shape of Water's Guillermo del Toro. A studio has signed with a director to have him uh, kind of be exclusive to them. Andy, you know a little bit more about this. What's going on? Okay, so after the the success of The Shape of Water and Three Billboards with which um, Fox Searchlight partnered, or they, they financed those films um, with uh, Guillermo del, del Toro, they've decided to kind of give him his own studio and his own label where he can um, oversee uh, several projects of, you know, varying from sci-fi and horror and fantasy. That's just going to be his little private <laughs> studio to oversee and make genre films in. Right. This is a big step. I, I don't think they do this with a whole lot of people. I can't remember the last director that got anything like this. Um, why do you think they're taking a chance on Gamer Del Toro? Well, I mean, mostly because of, like I said, his success at the Oscars, uh, two really great films. And I think they maybe just want to see more of that. Um, people are always complaining that we don't get enough original work in Hollywood. And here's a, a studio that's going to give him license to, to do exactly that. I'm torn on something like this only because I feel like, I feel like this is a hindsight is 20, really hindsight is 2020, really a rose colored glasses kind of issue. I think people look back on previous films from somebody who's been successful and think, Oh, they were geniuses. We just didn't get it then. Like, after Matthew McConaughey won the Oscar for Best Actor, I went back and watched Sahara, starring Matthew McConaughey. Like, just because he <laughs> did... Okay, hear me out. Just because he did fine Sahara. later in life uh, doesn't necessarily mean everything he did before then was brilliant. It doesn't mean everything he made was awesome and we just didn't get it, all right? It takes a little while to ramp up to something like that. And, like we know with a lot of Oscar winners, thinking of somebody like Halle Berry or maybe Adrian Brody, it doesn't mean everything you make after is going to continue to be brilliant. And that's what I wonder with something like Guillermo del Toro in this situation. I look at a movie like Hellboy 2, and I'm like, that wasn't really Oscar-worthy. It was good. It was very exciting. But, like, compared to The Shape of Water, they're two different beasts. So when they sign a deal like this with Guillermo del Toro, I'm certainly excited to see more of his work. He's a very Artur-esque director. He's got a lot of wacky ideas, and he comes up with cool monster movies. But I wonder if it's uh, maybe short-sighted. What do you think? Well, it's important to note that he's not going to be... Not all the projects are going to be his. Like He was going to help write some of them. He's essentially just going to oversee the label and the, and the new studio. So it's not just going to be just his all his movies all his films he's just overseeing the whole thing and i mean he does have a, a very impressive record and one stretching back pretty far i mean i i first remember him from pan's labyrinth and you know and and both hellboy movies which are still very unique even though they're i mean it's essentially a superhero film and it's but it has a very unique look and style one thing's for sure uh, i'm not sure how this will affect fox's kind of acquisition by disney I guess it won't. I guess Disney will just kind of roll with it, right? I mean, what, what, what do you think they'll do? Yeah, the, uh, the article mentions that, that it's it's a surprise move by Fox Searchlight because the, everything's up in the air with what's going to happen with the Disney acquisition. If it's even going to happen, it probably will, but even the fallout is uncertain. 
Um, so it's a brave move or bold move uh, for them to go ahead and give him his own label before the, the acquisition happens. It is an interesting thing when a director is involved with a film, but not in any kind of like, I guess, directorial or producer capacity. The thing that comes to mind is Back to the Future when it's like Steven Spielberg presents Back to the Future or even District 9, which was Peter Jackson presents a Neil Blomkamp film. And I wonder if that's how these movies will be, at least the ones he's not directly involved in, if it'll be Guillermo del Toro presents. And I don't know how I feel about that. It's yeah, weird putting your name next to something. It's almost yours. right. It's almost like a brand. Yeah. And, and I guess go ahead. It, it could it could be, you know, because Quentin Tarantino presents like that's been that was a thing or it has been done a couple of times. So it's it's another it could be powerful or it, if the movies suck, it, it could kind of be like, well, <laughs> Oh, great. Another one of these. Yeah. One thing's for sure. I, he's clearly very excited about it. Fox Searchlight likes the deal. Um, I'm excited to see more of what uh, crazy things come out of his head, whether they be his directly or somebody else who's kind of adapted something he made. But certainly an interesting move. And I can't help but wonder if we'll see that with more directors or at least auteurs in the future. Yeah, they have um, one project already kind of in the pipeline called Antlers. Um, that's a story about an ent- elementary school teacher who takes in a troubled student that harbors some sort of um, mysterious family secret with deadly consequences. Um, so he's working on overseeing this project. He's not writing it, or or he may direct, we'll see, but um, that's the first project that's in the pipeline. Hmm. Well, only time will tell, I guess. The other story we had for today is the 3D film fad Finally coming to an end. This is an article out of the playlist citing a recent report by the Motion Picture Association America that said that 2017 saw an 18% decrease in 3D ticket sales from the previous year, bringing 3D ticket sales to its lowest point since 2009, which is right before James Cameron's Avatar movie that is constantly, well, constantly, uh, usually referred to as kind of the flagship 3D film. Um, What do you think about this, Andy? Well, the first thing I want to ask is how do you feel about 3D? (laughs) <laughs> I don't. I, I avoid it if I can. Um, I'm I'm pretty much the same way. I think Avatar was pretty much been the only film that really looked great in 3D and really utilized uh, the technology. Everything else just seems to be like, uh, you know, afterthought cash grab. And, you know, the tickets are more expensive. So it's the kind of thing I generally avoid at all costs. There, there's been a couple of times when I've gone to see something on opening night. I think The, the Force Awakens I had to see in, in 3D because that's when th- that was like the only showing that you could reserve seats. Right. It's very telling that in our last episode, uh, you, myself, and Jack uh, all said that we saw Ready Player One in 2D. If given the option, we're like, no, we'll, we'll, we'll see it in 2D. Um, I think a big problem with this is a lot of films aren't shot in 3D. They're converted to 3D, which kind of gives it a cheap look in a way. Whereas Avatar was shot in 3D. Like uh, Gravity was shot in 3D. There's a difference. You use different cameras. It's a different kind of style of filmmaking. Um, and it shows in a subliminal way. If a movie's converted to 3D, yeah, it works, but like, it's not all that rad versus if it's shot in 3D, it like, it really does come off the screen, but it's just more expensive. And when it comes to making movies that are like $80 million, it's a lot cheaper to make it in 2d and convert it. And I think that's an issue here. Yeah. And I, and I think audiences that are just kind of burned out of it. I, I think 3d was really, it was a big fad for a while and now it's just, uh, audiences don't see the point. I've never been a big fan. I know Chris Nolan hates 3d. He thinks it's actually the picture is dim 
compared to normal uh, 2D. He also yeah. think he's also <laughs> says it's offensive to insinuate that 2D that you know normal screenings aren't three-dimensional <laughs> right uh, I, I i appreciate that somebody like james cameron is is trying to to kind of keep this alive and move the genre forward i can get behind it but it kind of reminds me of like peter jackson putting out the hobbit in like what was it 48 frames a second or something yeah it just looked kind of odd and it just kind of i don't know it, it it puts it in a weird way and it's funny i actually watched one of the hobbit movies recently on blu-ray it's definitely in 24 frames a second i'm like why did you bother presenting it in a different way like it, you thought it was going to move the needle and it didn't and somebody's got to be the first to cross that finish line somebody's got to be the first to climb that mountain i, I respect the hustle but um you kind of just end up looking foolish for it when the rest of the industry doesn't jump on well and the other thing is that the um, the next Avatar sequels, which there's like four planned, sure. does, doesn't come out till 2020. So, I mean, 3D may be completely dead by the time these suckers roll out. And I, I mean, I'll probably go see it if, if we're if we're if, if the show's still alive and well by then. I'll I'll definitely have to go see it. But I yeah, I, yeah. I'm just, I'm just not intrigued by a sequel to Avatar. No, it's too, it's too far. It's been too long. If it had been pretty quick, it would have been something. And it's weird, Avatar. I think we've talked about it before, maybe not on the show, but in person. Um, Avatar is like one of the highest grossing films of the year. It left absolutely no cultural impact whatsoever. Like Star Wars, I mean, Star Wars is Star Wars. You know about it, but it's not just that. There's Back to the Future. There's Ghostbusters. Like there's movies that came and went, but they left a mark. You can still get t-shirts at Target that have these things' logos on them. Avatar made more money than all of those. And like you can't go get an Avatar t-shirt. You can't find an Avatar lunchbox. Like there aren't Avatar toys at, at the Toys R Us closing right. sales. Um, it, it just doesn't exist anymore. Like it's it's like it dropped off the map. Yeah, no one no one quotes Avatar. Yeah, you know, and nobody. It's one, of, it's one of these things. I think it was a massive spectacle when it happened. I remember I saw it twice, both in two D and in in three D. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I thought it looked incredible, but. Upon reflecting on the story, it's very cliche. It's essentially Ferngully slash Pocahontas, mm-hmm. you know, ripped off in space. Right. Uh, so it, it wasn't really original. It, it now it it like I said, it was a huge spectacle, and that's that's I think what got people in the box office because it it really was something that we hadn't seen before. But what makes movies last and really have a long lasting impact are this is the story that they're telling, mm-hmm. not just the experience. And Avatar was yeah, it was all it was all spectacle, but there was no substance to it. It didn't really go anywhere, and that's why I think the sequels are kind of um, I don't want to say short lived, but I think there's a reason it's taken them this long to make them. You know, um, maybe people don't really want them. It's a scary thing, and it's crazy that Fox is greenlighting like four of these things. You'd think they'd do one and just see how it goes, but I get it. Made a bunch of money. Why? Why wouldn't they? Right? Oh, these have been pushed back. Like th- they were supposed to come out. I think the first sequel was supposed to come out last year. Mm-hmm. And it's not coming out till 2020. 2020. It's like further than the Game of Thrones finale. Like, come on, what's the holdup, you know? One thing's for sure, uh, whenever the next Avatar does come out, it better be a technical spectacle, just like the last one was. It better look incredible. Because Avatar, when it came out, looked pretty good, I think. Uh, you know, great mocap, great technology. But now it's like, well, looks pretty good, I guess. Hopefully it holds up. Anyway, that's about all we got for news this week. Like I said, one more story in the death of cinema, but before we get to that, we need to talk about our first film of the evening, John Krasinski's A Quiet Place.
Andy, you want to take the the summary for this one, or should I? Or? Uh, why don't Why don't you? Okay, you, you got the next one. Sure. All right. A Quiet Place is a God. Let me let me get my thoughts together here. A Quiet Place is the new film, first film from John Krasinski. I think I've said that three or four times, but it's important to note because when you go see this movie, you should be aware that it is the first swing at the ball. Um, a Quiet Place is a movie about a small family uh, led by John Krasinski's Lee Abbott and Emily Blunt's Evelyn Abbott, who are married in real life, certainly some on-screen chemistry there, and their three children uh, struggling to survive in a dystopian world where uh, creatures kind of roam about that are attracted to sound, so you have to live very quietly, you have to do everything very quietly, and the movie plays with sound in that way, and it's kind of a, 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 a rather short film, honestly, at 90 minutes, a uh, movie about the trials and tribulations of trying to be very quiet and constantly living in fear. It's a very <laughs> exciting film. Uh, Andy, what did you think of A Quiet Place? Um, I thought it was really brilliant. Um, we've said uh, many times on the show that you know, good horror and good thrillers are about atmosphere and mood, and A Quiet Place does that so well that you feel uncomfortable you feel creeped out uh the entire time there aren't really a whole lot of jump scares it's really about the mood and the fear of making any sound um he does this great thing of of where the sound design is almost like a texture because he'll have scenes that are completely silent um the daughter played by uh, millicent uh, simmons is deaf in real life and her character is deaf on screen as well so whenever the focus is on her there's no sound at all it's it's like stone deaf and then you then you also have just um scenes where you have ambient noise like wind rustling through the trees but but no other sound so it's quiet but there is some sound and then you have louder scenes uh depending on what's happening there's a scene where they're by a river and so you get kind of these three to four different stages of of sound design and it's really brilliant with how he plays with that and plays with the audience yeah, it's it's really clever. It reminded me of um, the first Alien film in a way because sound is used, like you said, as a paintbrush throughout the movie, and it's never it's never particularly overbearing in either way. There's never too much noise, and there's never like not enough noise because some people I know uh, express disinterest in this movie because of that they're like, well, what is this? The whole movie going to be really quiet until there's a jump scare, a jump scare? No, no, there's sound. There, there's things that happen. You can hear people kind of whispering in certain scenes. You can hear like somebody's flipping through a book. You'll hear the pages flipping. It's not just completely silent. Like that would be nuts. Um, and it's really well done. Yeah, you have the moments with the daughter who can't hear anything and it's just dead silent. And you have other moments with a little something going on. There's some music in the movie. Like, it does move at a good pace, and I think that's important. It's not too overbearing either way. Um, I do think it's intriguing, the visuals, how it was shot, because the camera kind of does this weird in-between between, like, an omniscient independence from something like a Kubrick film or even um, Evil Dead, where the camera kind of moves and has a life on it, uh, all its own. Versus, like, kind of a reserved setback camera in something like um, most other films. <laughs> <laughs> Alien is a fine example of that. Like, the camera kind of just, it's almost like you're watching it uh, from far away. And it kind of dances between the two. And I don't know if that was to the movie's benefit. It felt a little confusing from the identity of the audience member watching the movie. Um, but again, this is the first swing at the ball for John Krasinski. 
And for what it's worth, like I thought the movie was pretty well shot. Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I I can't really think too much about um, it was shot other than it just looked really convincing. The the world building was mm-hmm. good. You, and you, it reminded me a little bit of um, It Comes at Night, where it's you know a post apocalyptic setting with a family in a remote setting. Uh, so it's kind of similar to that, but. Uh, just like the routines that they've created to be quiet, they, there's this whole thing with sand on the ground, which I assume they, they pour to like cu- kind of cover your footsteps or make sure that your footsteps are quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, so just like the the setting that he's created by trying to avoid sound is really interesting. Um, and the other thing is is it avoids jump scares, but it's still really scary because when the when these creatures inevitably come around, um, you know they can't see, but you can hear them growling and snarling and kind of stomping around and it just you know it's like being in the jungle with a tiger kind of dread that it creates right and i thought it was interesting because this movie as far as i could tell was advertised as a horror film but rotten and metacritic labeled it as an action thriller which i thought was weird but when you watch the movie it becomes pretty clear that it is more of a thriller and it's just kind of advertised as a horror film because they don't really hide the monsters. I mean, for the first little bit, it's kind of, you know, you, you got to build up that suspense, but they pretty much lay it out for you. Here's the rules. Here's how they work. You get a good look at them. Like they, they kind of, so, so it moves away from horror and it kind of stays in the thriller section. And I think that's good. It's not straight up dark, twisted horror. Um, they keep you on your toes, but staying away from that and kind of hanging out in the thriller genre i think makes jump scares a little lighter and there's a few to be fair there's a few jump scares in this movie but they're pretty generous and they're pretty fair you never feel like oh that came out of absolutely nowhere like the ending to paranormal activity um you, you kind of expect it and and it feels it's never too overly loud there was one jump scare that i was like that was a little much but everything else like the the volume's reasonable because it's got to cut through silence you know it's never a huge boom it never rattles your seat um it's fair like i said and you, you don't feel cheated which is good yeah uh the other thing i wanted to mention is uh, this actually to do with the plot and story is that it it has a real emotional center because it's about this family trying to survive and there's some themes about you know protecting one's children and kind of what would you do to protect your your family and it, there's i mean i've i've talked to several people who like teared up uh through different parts of the movie so there's a very um just core like family element in play and that's that's part of what makes it work is that you really care about the characters you care about what happens to them right that's something i i assumed was drawn from krasinski's days on the office the thing he's most well known for but you look at a movie like um it comes at night and the whole kind of premise of that movie was you never really know who you can and can't trust. Even if you can trust family, they keep people's roles in that movie kind of assigned and far away from the audience. So you kind of have to figure it out as you go. Whereas this movie makes it pretty clear and assigns a lot of independence to each one of these characters. John Krasinski plays a father who is struggling to protect his family in a world where he has no idea if he can actually do that or not. His son is confused and scared all the time and doesn't really know how to deal with things that's happening. His daughter, who's deaf, 
feels guilty because she's deaf and can't hear. So she struggles to kind of keep up with the family in ways that if they hear something, she doesn't. So it's like tough for her. And she feels like she's kind of outcast from everybody else. They really do a good job of like establishing that identity and that set of morals for each character to get you to know them better and to help you understand who they are, where they come from, and have you care about them. So when they're in danger, it matters more. There's more weight to it. Right, exactly. I um, also want to mention Emily Blunt's character, who does a fantastic performance. And uh, this is in the trailer, so it's not a spoiler, but um, her character is pregnant. And as we mm-hmm. well know, childbirth is not a quiet event, and babies are not <laughs> quiet uh, events no. either. So that's it's a great piece of foreshadowing because it's something they're going to have to deal with uh, later on in the film because... And like I said, they can't make sound, so it's it's a real real challenge. And and she, there's some really painful moments. There's some parts that I was definitely like cringing in in my seat. And she just gives a really absolutely brilliant performance. Right, and like I mentioned earlier, that that chemistry between her and John Krasinski is very palpable on screen. Like they get along well, they work together well. They're married in real life. It shows. Like they. Their characters really do integrate well. And normally I'd say it's difficult to direct um, somebody you're in a relationship with. Fine example, uh, Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom. Steven Spielberg trying to direct what's-her-name. Uh, it's terrible. Uh, Kate but this Capshaw. Movie, like, yeah, Kate Capshaw. But this movie, like, it totally works. Um, and apparently, as, as he said in interviews, like, John Krasinski said there's parts where, like, they only had, had to do one take suddenly got it perfect and normally you hear directors say that oh yeah it's because it's your girlfriend man like whatever but no like it really does show emily blunt knows what she's doing she's a solid actress and she's well directed in this movie yes like you said she's excellent their chemistry is works and the family element is is really convincing and that's that's just part of the core story and like we we said just like any horror movie needs atmosphere and mood it also needs a competent story and complex characters that you care about Right. And I did want to address the story. Um, as far as setting up a world and executing kind of a story in it, I think this movie does a pretty good job. There are a couple issues that came up that I thought to myself, that doesn't make sense. Why would they do that? That probably wouldn't work. Um, but I think that's present in probably any any movie like this one. And again, first swing at it. It was his first movie. Like, I got, I got to respect it. Um, there's a lot of stuff that... I maybe didn't agree with, but was done pretty well in this movie. And there's a lot of stuff I did agree with that was done really well in this movie. So overall, um, I was really pleased with it. Yeah, and I think it's also important to point out that it was number one at the box office. It it uh, dethroned Ready Player One, mm-hmm. first swing out of the gate. Yeah, and that's a, that's a big ask, um, especially considering... What I would believe is to be a pretty low budget in this movie. I don't, I don't think he had a whole lot to work with, and they made it work pretty well for what it's worth um, versus something like Ready Player One, which had a ton of money behind it. Yeah, exactly. So it's all about the underdog, I guess. Anyway, Andy, would you recommend A Quiet Place? Oh, absolutely. I would as well. Yeah, I was really pleased with kind of its execution. I think, again, it's important to understand this is this is a little rough around the edges. Uh, the trailer package that ran in front of it, we were talking about it before the show, shows some movies that maybe aren't all blockbusters. Um, and it's important to understand, like, this is low budget. They were taking a chance on John Krasinski here, and, like, it shows. The guy did a pretty good job. Uh, I'm anxious to see what he comes up with next. Yeah, same here. And, it, and horror is... is uh, that's a pretty bold 
move to be your first film. Usually you would do something like a drama or an indie or maybe a, some sort of comedy, um, you know, c- really play it safe. So it's it's really an impressive first step to take on the horror thriller genre and have it succeed like this. Yeah, definitely. Not to mention this was produced by Michael Bay, I'm pretty sure, which was kind of a surprise to see his name in the credits. Clearly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. somebody believed in Jim from The Office, and I'm glad. Like, I'm, I'm anxious to see what he comes up with next. Whatever it is, I'll, I'll be watching. Our next story, uh, and this is our... Um, well, gosh, I, you want to say it, Andy? I, I introduced Quiet Place. It's time for the death of cinema. Netflix threatens to withhold films from the Cannes Film Festival. This is an article out of The Hollywood Reporter explaining exactly what it says. Following some um, some rules, right, uh, banning... Net, or possibly banning Netflix movies from Can Con. I'm gonna go with Can. Can. Uh, <laughs> Netflix. Netflix's CEO Reed Hastings came out and said that uh, they may not bring any movies to Can. So, despite you guys saying, "Well, you can't play in our sandbox," we don't want to be there. Uh, we, our movies will show somewhere else. Don't worry about it. Andy, you sent this story to me. You were the one that found it. What do you think about this? Okay, so this fight's been brewing uh, for a while now. So let's back up a year. Um, at last year's Cannes, Netflix uh, got to premiere two two films. Uh, one was Okja, and the other one was uh, The Meyer Witch Stories. And apparently there was some uproar from the French that these films had not had theatrical distribution, therefore they should not be allowed in competition. Um, and I don't, th- and I think those films did well, but I don't think they won any of like, the, big, the big awards. So anyways, the the festival director has said that, well, Netflix, will do. you are not allowed to be in competition. We, we will screen your films. You, they can be seen, but um, they, they can't compete. And the reason that's a big deal is the competition is part of, you know, how they attract buyers and distributors. Um, so it's kind of making them a second-class citizen to say, we'll show them, but they, they can't be in competition. So Netflix in... Uh, in reaction has said, well, we're just going to pull all our films. And at this point, um, you know, Cannes is, is the biggest film festival in the world. So they may just be like, well, we don't care. But I mean, Netflix is a big player too. So that's, they're not something that can be ignored. Right. This, this made me a little irate when you sent it over. Um, and it's because I, it frustrates me whenever any group of individuals tries to claim that they do know what a film is or isn't frustrating as far as can addressing that well these movies are supposed to be possibly finding distribution and they're already on netflix so they don't need it and therefore there's no need for them to compete i guess i can get that but that's kind of a contrived argument and really what the base of your argument sounds like is your movie didn't show in a theater it's not getting theatrical release therefore it's not a real movie right maybe i'm reaching yeah, well, because well, I was gonna say Amazon kind of uh, strikes a middle ground where they'll um, they'll have theatrical distribution for some of their films, and then they'll go to the streaming service. Um, but Netflix, you know, for whatever reason, you know, has not gone after that model, has not pursued that, and you know, their when their films come out, they're just on on the service. Mm-hmm. What frustrates me about this, and just like how it how Steven Spielberg frustrated me uh last week or the week before i think uh talking about how netflix films 
shouldn't be uh, nominated for Academy Awards. Um, it frustrates me that people are claiming to define what is and is not a movie. Um, a lot of people would like to prescribe Netflix films as like television movies. I don't think that's correct. Netflix isn't on television. I can't, I can't get a cable package and tune into Netflix. Doesn't work. Right. Like, so I don't know why you would call it a television movie. It's a streaming film. Um, but that doesn't make it any less of a movie in the same way like a Disney Channel original movie. Yeah, just because it ran on TV doesn't make it not a film. Still a film. may not be a good film. It's a film. It just is. <laughs> exactly. Um, and that's what's frustrating about this is that we have a group of people saying, well, your movies aren't really movies, though. They're not movies like our movies. Um, and drawing those lines can, can be a bad thing. Yeah, and it's important to note that uh, the French are very, very protective of the theater-going experience for whatever reason. If something comes out in theaters there, it is not allowed to come out on DVD or streaming for three years. So long, long window. And it's just how they are. Um, I mean, France has been historically a big mecca of of the arts uh, in music and dance and things like this. So they're, you know, they're a little snobby about about their arts for sure. Right. And and like bully for France. Good for you guys. Like well done. I'm sure everyone of your theaters have people that like sit quietly and respectfully and don't like munch popcorn and and look at their cell phones during movies. That's great. The rest of the world doesn't have that. Saudi Arabia doesn't even have theaters. So it's weird to me when they say, well, this is a movie and this isn't a movie and we're going to draw lines here because it, it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help move this industry forward. Arguably, it sets us back. And that's frustrating coming out of France, which had the French new wave movement where they had people like Godard uh, imitating American film in a movie like Breathless. You've got your main character running around acting like Humphrey Bogart, looking at movie posters from America. Like, you guys have cinema that has evolved from the world, so it's frustrating to me when you shut out everybody else and say, nope, that's not a movie, that doesn't count, that's not going to be eligible here. And, go ahead, sorry, it's your turn to talk, I don't want to cut you off. <laughs> um, well, I mean, the other thing, it's, it's a technological issue as well. I mean, they, they kind of seem like a bunch of Luddites um, for not wanting to embrace, like, the streaming media, because like it or not, it's it's here to stay, and, you know, there's big talk about same-day distribution, that you'll be able to pay a premium, probably, for, you know, the latest Marvel movie. Oh, it's out today, I can watch it at home. Like, that's probably coming in the next few years, and so you're gonna have to figure out how you're gonna survive, and I mean, theaters are, are in real trouble, and, and I, I feel like Netflix is just plowing ahead. They're kind of, they see what the future ma- might be. Sure. And not just Netflix, Amazon and Hulu are on this boat too. I mean, and, and I know some people have compared this to HBO. Well, you don't see HBO complaining. Well, no, I guess not. But if HBO could be in Cannes, they would. I think it's fair for the people who run Cannes to say what can and can't get into the movie, in, in, into, the, into the festival. It's fine. It's your festival, right? Like you, you, can, you can set the rules how you want. But they also need to understand that like this is this is the one. This is the biggest film festival in the world. If anybody needs to be accepting of movies like this, it's you guys. Everybody else should be able to say, "Well, you can't do that." Whatever. Like you guys are are a symbol for film throughout the world. What's the problem? What's what's your issue? Yeah, why are you shut? Why are you turning people away at the door? Um, it's frustrating and close minded. Well, and Netflix isn't bringing like their D list game or their you know worst properties they're it's their the pictures and the directors and actors that 
are kind of at the top of their game that they've worked with. There, there's a um, a film called Norway by Paul Greengrass, uh, which is actually I think about the Oslo terrorist attack that may or may not get screened there. So the decision is coming Thursday about whether or not they're going to allow the, these Netflix films in. But there's a lot of really great cinema in Netflix. I know that not all of their content is great, but some of it really is. Sure. I mean, another fine one, Orson Welles' The Other Side of the World. It's a newly completed version of the project he filmed in the 1970s that he never finished. Netflix has that, and they're not going to screen it. Like, come on. Really? What, if just some like independent editor had picked that up and put it together, you guys would probably be cool with it. But because it's got Netflix name on it, somehow it's not okay? It's an Orson Welles film. What's the problem? Why wouldn't you pursue that? Like, it's incredible that that's, gotten, that's been turned into something. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's not going to happen because they're, they're a streaming service and they're not real film. That's really a bummer. Yeah, I think this is a, kind of a debate we're going to see happen for a while. Right. Um, so we'll see on Thursday what, what they decide. But this this is going to continue. Yeah. And we'll be sure to follow up with it here on the show. Our last story, or our last story, our last film of the evening. Uh, Andy, this one's all you. Uh, take it away. The Killing of a Sacred Deer. He's got issues. Serious psychological issues. This is, actually came out about six months ago. This was the latest film by Yorgos Lanthimos, um, who previously did The Lobster, which you saw. I didn't. I did. You didn't remember, see that? No. I, I remember we, we talked about it in, in, oh, kind of, gosh. in some of our like pre-show episodes when we had Kristen on the show. You guys had both seen it. Oh, okay. Um, well, real, real quick. Have you seen anything else by him? I've, se- I've seen two of his films and then this, so three now. Um, no, I think this is the first one, actually. Oh my God! No. Okay. Well, now now I now I know why you feel the way you do about it. Great. Well, let's let's dig into this. Yeah. Please take it away. <laughs> okay. Um, so, well, first of all, I wanted to say that it. Um, you know, I heard a lot about it. It had a lot of buzz. Um, there was some awards talk um, for it. I don't think it actually got nominated for anything, but I, I had heard a lot about it. Really wanted to see it. And actually, I think it's a good companion piece to A Quiet Place because it's a different kind of of horror in itself. Um, anyways, the setup is that uh, Colin Farrell plays a cardiologist, and he has a family, uh, his beautiful wife, played by Nicole Kidman. He lives in a big house, has big cars, lives in an expensive neighborhood um, th- with two kids. Yes, I think I said that. So he's kind of living the American dream. Um, and then he also is kind of mentoring a teenage boy named Martin, uh, played brilliantly by Barry Keown, who was in Dunkirk over the summer. Um, and so everything seems seems really, really cool. And he's, you know, doing this big brother thing uh, for this teenage kid. But then that relationship is kind of weird. Uh, the What they talk about and how they talk to each other is very strange. Everyone talks in this very kind of robotic way. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, uh, Stephen is, is the character's name. Uh, he's Colin Farrell's character. He starts buying gifts, very expensive gifts for Martin. He buys him like a $10,000 watch. Um, you know, it really makes you raise an eyebrow. And the longer they meet, you realize something's not quite right because he will kind of drop everything to go meet with uh, Martin. And it's nothing inappropriate. It's not sexual in any in any way. Like they'll meet at a park or they'll meet at a diner. 
and just kind of talk about mundane th- things. But he will drop everything he's doing to go meet with this boy. He'll, you know, step out of the office and, and get on the phone. So you get the feeling that something's not right, that there's some sort of secret or that he's got the goods on, on the doctor. And so that's why he's he's pandering. And so th- this is kind of the initial part of the film. And it's very unsettling. The score here is brilliant because you get that, that horror avant-garde really creepy score so you'll have very normal looking scenes but because the score is so unsettling it it creates again that atmosphere that's so important in good horror Mm. um eventually his kids begin to fall ill and being a doctor they're immediately rushed to the hospital and they have all these experts at him and they cannot figure out what is wrong with him all these tests come back negative they bring in experts. No one knows anything. And, right. eventually, and eventually there's a conversation between Martin, uh, the teenage boy, and uh, Dr. Murphy. Wh- and where Martin kind of says, I can help your family, but I need you to do something for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't, and I because I enjoyed this film so much, I don't want to get into the details of that. But that's kind of uh, the setup. And so the rest of the film kind of deals with a decision that Dr. Murphy has to or make or, or not make. Yes. Um, God, I, I don't know really where the first place to jump in on this is other than, uh, I've seen three of Yorgos Lanthimos films, Lanthimos films. Now, uh, dog tooth, which came out in 2009, the lobster, which came out in 2015 and the killing of a sacred deer, which came out in 2017. He is a Greek filmmaker. He is an auteur, which for those of you who don't know, means all of his movies kind of feel the same and have the same kind of general vibe, like how Kubrick's films all kind of feel the same or how Michael Bay's films all kind of feel the same. Guillermo del Toro. Um, His signature kind of style is this very dry, emotionless presentation of dialogue and character. Um, And that is very present in this movie. If you haven't seen one of his movies and you've made it this far into this podcast, it would be foolish of me not to recommend you head to Amazon and check out this movie at the very least, another one of his if you can, because you don't know what I'm talking about until you've heard it. It is hard to describe. It really is. It's 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 wild. Um, and it's not for everybody. And, and And I've seen three of his films and I respect him and I enjoy him for it. I genuinely had trouble getting through the first half of this film. It's two hours. It is, uh, it is a little slow in the first half. The first 50 minutes of the film, nothing exciting happens, even remotely. Almost halfway through the film that we transition to the second act, and that's rough. But it's all set up for something pretty fantastic. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it very quickly turns into a roller coaster in a way you wouldn't expect, um, and it's very exciting. Going into this movie, just watching the trailer, I didn't really know what to expect. I was going to have Christine watch it with me, who's not a uh, not a horror fan. And I said, well, let's watch the trailer and see what you think. Should, sur- sure. And, and the first trailer pops up with a th- huge thing that's like outrageous psychological horror. She's like, nope. I had no idea. <laughs> I was just going to go in blind. Um, so that's something to understand at first. This is a, I guess, a psychological horror film. But I was never particularly frightened. And that's what's psychological about it, I guess. What, what was your experience with it in regards to that genre? Do you feel like it fit that mold? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, you don't get the you don't get ghosts or boogeymen jumping out or or jump scares. You just get a really kind of disturbing situation and really 
kind of strange characters that are a little bit too calm about the situations they're in. Um, I, I heard it described as saw for the art house, <laughs> you know, because okay, yeah. there's that, you know, you have elements of body horror of, of psychological horror. Um, and like I said, this, the scores is so well done that adds to the mood and the atmosphere. Um, one of the things I want, I wanted to mention, and you'll know more about this is just how it's shot. A lot of the, the scenes when they're in the hospital, there's these long tracking shots, um, and a lot of times they're very high up. They're actually way above the character and back. And it almost feels like, I don't know, like a ghost or something is floating above them. Right. See, that's what I had been talking about with A Quiet Place, where some scenes feel, yeah, like like kind of like It Comes at Night, where the camera is like independent and it kind of swims through the air and it feels like there's like, there's an identity to it. There's something behind that camera. Like it gives you this uneasy feeling and mixed with the music in the film, it works really effectively. And a lot of ways, especially a lot of the hospital scenes, reminded me of Kubrick. A lot of it's one point perspective and it kind of just floats behind characters as they walk down a hall. It's really effective. Um, and it's unsettling in a way that's difficult to describe <laughs> on a podcast. Yeah, um, and I did read this several places, so I'm not reaching, but a, a number of people have said like those tracking shots are reminiscent of The Shining, of course. The same kind of, of tra- tracking shots around around the hospital. Um, now, here's the thing about the first half, is after, after watching it, I realized there's a lot of important things in the first half and a lot of symbolism, and that's what I... I don't want to get into it too much, but there's a lot of different ways to read this film. And it's important to note that it's based on kind of an ancient Greek story, ancient Greek myth, um, that there's actually several, um, myths about, uh, Iphigenia is the, the woman Agamemnon. We're talking like Trojan war. Oh, good Lord. You, you read into this movie in a whole other way. I, I I hadn't picked up on that at all. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, somewhere along that I read that it was based on these old myths. And so I uh, did some research and it, it's very loosely, like it's not a retell, it's not a modern retelling. It, it kind of just takes some of these elements, uh, from, from these ancient texts and brings them in into into the modern era and it's important uh, to know that because the themes i mean there's so much in here i mean i was like going nuts reading <laughs> reading through all these uh, different analysis and coming up uh, with some of my own mm-hmm. um but w- one of the things that i want to talk about is this theory of of time and excess one of the th- one of the readings i i read was that it's about american excess or american kind of greed yeah. Um, but so watches are very prominent throughout the film. I don't know if you noticed this. Uh, the very first conversation between the two doctors is about their watches. Yeah. Did you know? Oh, you know. So they're they're kind of having a pissing contest about whose watch is more expensive or yeah. or better. Uh-huh. Um, and then one of the gifts that that uh, Doctor Murphy buys Martin is of you know the very expensive watch. And then there's a couple of uh, other scenes where we see watches very prominently portrayed like there there's a reason that it's in the film and it what it reminded me of is this theory of time as the great equalizer yeah um that not not equality but equalization to where you know if you wear a rolex and i wear a ten dollar watch they they tell the same time you know (laughs) and we're all kind of equal under you know the burden of time and that's one of like a ton of different uh readings that uh, that are in the film uh there's things i've read about how it's a metaphor about gods and man, uh, about religion, about the seven deadly sins. I mean, it, it like goes on and on and on. Right. I 
like I said, you read into this movie in a totally different <laughs> way than I did. I kind of just took it at surface level. Um, I, I, I had trouble kind of getting through it because it's so dry. And it's, it's difficult for me to kind of stay tuned in. I mean, in a, it, it dry in a way that, again, if you haven't seen it, I would strongly recommend it only to see what I'm talking about. Like characters have absolutely no tone with what they say. Right. And they have absolutely no inhibitions to stop them from saying what they think. They just very flatly state how they feel or what they're thinking about something. It's obscure and it's awkward to watch, but I think that's part of the charm. And after an hour, you're kind of lulled into it and you get it. Um, and it makes that it, it somehow makes the ending of the film feel more human by kind of dehumanizing all of these people in a, in a way that's very. Um, disarming i think is the word i'm looking for uh yeah yeah it's very disturbing because everyone talks in this weird strange uh robotic way and uh martin uh the teenage character he he'll go in and out of these phrases where he'll just be talking about the most mundane thing and then kind of slip in something something really terrible and then go back into something mundane without changing any kind of like tone or inflection it's just kind of straight across and it's just like it catches you by surprise and just like the lobster, I feel like you, or, or and Dogtooth, arguably, you end up in a place where like none of the characters are particularly likable. Like you don't really like any of them. You're just kind of rooting for one over the other. But none of them are particularly good people. They all express things that are dark and twisted. They all have kind of theories uh, about the world that that are are strange and and kind of unrealistic it almost doesn't feel like reality it feels like you're watching like an alternate universe where people do things the way they do and it's difficult to kind of get into which is which is where i struggled right what who were you uh rooting for just out of curiosity i mean the main character colin farrell um mm-hmm. and his his family i think is kind of who you're supposed to be pulling for but yeah, at the end of the day, I'm like, you're not necessarily the good guys. No, Nobody is necessarily the good guy in this movie. Like, everybody kind of does something that's twisted and strange uh, and it's in its own way. Everybody kind of uh, swims against the stream here. That's just kind of the whole world of the film. Like, nobody, <laughs> nobody is particularly good, enlightening character. Like, they're all twisted and weird. And I think that kind of ties into the title. The killing of a sacred deer, the killing of something that is nice and good and right. Um, so what's a, the title specifically refers to one, one of the myths, um, one uh, Agamemnon or, or whatever king uh, slaughters a sacred deer belonging to Artemis and he has to atone, atone for this. Um, so it specifically is pulled from that element, but it, 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 it kind of exactly what you said. Yeah. And to be honest, this is one of those movies I watched and thought, God, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to talk about this on the podcast, which is kind of where <laughs> I'm at now. I'm like, I, I struggle to kind of wrap my head around it. I'm still not really sure how exactly um, I feel about it. I know you watched it and felt like I need to go read a bunch about it. I definitely flipped through a couple articles because I was like, I need, a, I, I need something to kind of help, help suss out these thoughts that I have, and I still don't really know where I'm at. Well, what, what I liked is that even if you don't do like any research or you don't dig into you know what it's based on i felt like there was still a lot there to to pull out like i i watched it early enough yesterday that i almost wanted to start it again just with and get pen and paper ready so i could start like (laughs) you know writing down detail so that's i mean i i got in it really completely It, it was i mean the first 45 minutes are they're a little slow i will admit that it definitely is 
but one but once you're there it's like oh man now what did i miss in that first half when i wasn't really paying attention yeah it really does pick up like it, it's it's tough to get through at first but if you can make it through that you'll be pleased with the rest of the film uh, one of the things i did want to talk about was the pop culture references in in the movie uh something i had to really dig through to find a decent trailer clip for uh, is a clip from the trailer that doesn't feature uh, the young girl singing a pop song. I forget the name of it, but uh, that was present in this movie. And I thought it was weird. And it's funny because she sings this song a cappella, and she's not particularly good at it. Yeah. Um, so it feels like a, it's a different version of this thing we know, just like the rest of the movie, just like the world of the film. Everybody's kind of familiar, but not really. And, and, and like... It, it just leaves you in a weird spot. You're, you're, you're watching a, a movie that doesn't quite match up with reality. And like the, the things you would assume about characters, the assumptions you'd make based on what you know about human people and how they interact with each other are always kind of offset. You're never really comfortable. And that's part of the point, I think. You're never really like, I get this. I, I know what's going to happen next. Never. You're never, there's never a point where you feel like I got it and, and I, I, I'm, I'm okay with what's happening. Yeah. I, I was definitely surprised the entire film by everyone's actions. I kept trying to, uh, there were a couple of times I tried to predict things. I was like, Oh, this is, this is totally what's going to happen. It's so obvious. This is what, and then it's like, Nope. <laughs> no, and it's, you are, and it's not cheap. Right. You are constantly hit with whiplash all the time. I mean, even to the point where like one of the characters says, about halfway through the movie, like I said, right where it starts to pick up, that something will happen to another character, and it doesn't happen. Just, like, like kind of to mess with you? Because the whole movie, you're thinking, well, eventually that thing he said is going to come true. No, it doesn't. So, yeah. Like, and, and it's weird. Like, you're never really, you never really feel safe. You always just feel kind of up in the air, and, and it's kind of the psychological element of the psychological horror, and it, it's... It's shockingly effective for a movie that is so dry. Um, it works really well. Yeah, and like I said, th- this is a great companion piece, actually, I think, to A Quiet Place because they both deal with these families and what you would and wouldn't do uh, for them. And it's, again, different kind of horror. Right. I do feel like I'm starting to talk in circles. So did you have any final thoughts before recommendations? Uh, no, I think I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend The Killing of a Sacred Deer? I absolutely would, uh, but you got to be patient with it. You, it's a slow burn. Got to give it a chance. Uh, yeah, I I would recommend it as well, especially if you are a subscriber to this podcast. You could probably get into it. Your mom would probably hate it. Like it's it's it is weird and out there. But if you've never watched one of his movies, I think this is a pretty good place to start. Honestly, if not this, arguably Dogtooth. Um, Came out in 2009. I don't think you can find it streaming anywhere, but I would recommend that over The Lobster because Dogtooth is just a little bit more relatable and I could talk about that uh, at another time. But yeah, I'd say it's totally worth the price of admission if you've got Amazon Prime. Check it out. Yeah, I definitely want to go back and, and catch up on his filmography after this film. Yeah, no, I mean it. Um, if, yeah, if, you, if you like this movie, I think any one of his other movies you'll enjoy. They're all presented in the same like weird I keep saying weird, odd, unique, eccentric way. I don't want to say it's weird. It's different. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. The man is an auteur. He knows what he's doing. Um, it's not for everybody, um, but it might be for you. So 
check it out. The Killing of a Sacred Deer. And with that, I think that just about wraps our show. Andy, we ran short this week. Look at that. That's, I know. that's a change. I can't remember the last time we did an episode under an hour. We kept it brief, I suppose. That's what happens when you have a movie with very little dialogue, I guess. Meaning a quiet place. Um, any 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 final thoughts for a wrap-up for the week? Um, just a reminder, check out last week's episode with our special guest, Jack, from Jack's Movie Reviews. We're really gra- glad to have him on for uh, Ready Player One. Yes. Uh, next week, we'll be checking out the new Dwayne The Rock Johnson film, Rampage, which I don't know how I feel about. It. I guess I'm excited, in a way. <laughs> um, I loved the video game, Rampage, so if it's got any of that goodness in it, I think I'll enjoy it. Um, and I'm, I am kind of looking forward to a, to an action flick that's kind of original, hopefully refreshing. Um, hopefully, it'll, it'll kind of keep me on my toes. As far as the other film goes, I guess we haven't really decided yet. Um, well, there's you got, yeah, more, what do you think? Well, I was going to say that, um, you know, part of the reason we did killing of a sacred deer is because it's out on Amazon prime as of mm-hmm. last Friday. So we'll, we're going to look through, see what other, um, things we're going to have, but also I, I'm really trying to find the new Lynn, Lynn Ramsey movie. Uh, you were never really here, uh, with Joaquin Phoenix. I've heard it's brilliant. It technically came out last week, but you know, good luck finding <laughs> a showing. Yeah, it's tough because I, I want to see that as well. And if I could find a screening, I would want to go. The only issue is this weekend I'm traveling. So I might be more inclined towards a streaming film like The Florida Project. I know that was something we were talking about watching. Um, but definitely Rampage. I'll squeeze in. The other one, you're just going to have to tune in and see, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you want to suggest something we should see, uh, maybe an older movie or something new that you'd rather we check out, email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Check out our website offscriptfilmreview.com if you listen to last week's episode and you enjoy the conversation do us a solid check out jack at jack's movie reviews on youtube hit the sub button man do him do him a favor come on like times is tough and that guy knows what he's doing uh and if you enjoyed this episode let us know check us out on itunes rate and review if you can swing it uh get involved with the show it helps us find people and people find us and we appreciate it so yeah I think that's just about if it for episode 17 off script, the home of Bold Cinema. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.